Welcome back to MERS Monday. For more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's edition of MERS Monday, Senator Debbie Stabenow is retiring at the end of her term in 2024. So who is best positioned to replace her? U.S. Rep. Debbie Dingell, a Democrat from the Ann Arbor area, and Stu Sandler, the political director for the National Republican Senatorial Committee, share their perspectives. State Rep. Kevin Coleman speaks about the reaction to him announcing for the Westland mayor position among members of the Democratic Caucus, which has a slim 56-54 majority going into the new term. Also, the MERS team discusses the history of Michigan House Speaker elections. Now, here's MERS News Editor Kyle Malin, along with MERS' John Ruhring. Thank you, Mark Bayshore. Well, this town is buzzing after Debbie Stabenow announced that she's going to be finishing her term as the U.S. Senator for the state of Michigan here at the end of 2024 and will not run for re-election. So, naturally, the question becomes, who is going to run to replace her and who better to have on the podcast to talk about that? Then Stu Sandler, who just served a term as the political director for the National Republican Senatorial Committee, knows a little bit about these kind of things. How are you doing, Stu? Great. Great to be back. Great to be with you guys today. Well, why don't you tell our listeners, first of all, what you've been doing and and what you're looking at uh, as far as as far as uh, going forward here in 2023? Sure. So I just finished up a term as the political director for the National Republican Senate Committee. Uh, Basically, I was the liaison to the campaigns and candidates for the committee, uh, trying to win back majority. And it was a great job. I had a really great time doing it. Uh, Came up a little short, but still enjoyed it. I was with uh, Chairman Rick Scott, who I thought did an excellent job. Uh, You know, uh, Gary Peters, Senator Gary Peters was the DSCC chair. I thought he did an excellent job. I mean, we saw kind of his strategy the whole way and it was smart. And, you know, we wound up keeping majority. So my hat's off to him and his staff. But uh, it was fun. Uh, to do. Uh, as for the future, I'm talking uh, to a number of people about a number of opportunities. I'll have something to announce, you know, kind of in the next couple of weeks, and I'll make sure to let my friends at MERS go know what's going on uh, once it happens. But it, w- it was a great time. But uh, it's funny that um, Stabenow's retirement um, comes up. Uh, my first day of work, which was probably two years ago, a little, a little more, not to the day, uh, I walked down to my new boss and said, guys, I'm hearing from my friends in Ohio that uh, Senator Portman is going to retire today. And they said, no, I, I, I'm not hearing that. Well, <laughs> half hour later, uh, and it set off a chain reaction that we wound up spending $40 million on a seat that I don't know that we would have had to spend on necessarily if Senator Portman ran for reelection. J.D. Vance won it. But, you know, in a year like this is where the Democrats have a two to one disadvantage about who's running and who's not, this is this is a real this really hurts the SEC, who doesn't even have a chair at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we'll talk about that money aspect. So, you know, when we when we hear about um, these kind of Senate races, how much more expensive is it when it is an open seat as opposed to when there's an incumbent running? Well, I don't know that that necessarily makes a difference, because if you look at uh, the the recent Georgia race, you know, Senator Warnock spent $150 million defending his seat. Herschel Walker spent 53. That was from the campaigns alone. But I mean, you know, if you take a seat like Ohio, you know, Senate leadership fund spent $25 million there. We spent 5 million, you know, it, it, uh, it, 
they, it, 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 their tens of millions racks up. Michigan is a race where I think it was going to be challenged regardless if Stabenow ran or not, but she clearly makes this a more competitive seat now that she's stepped out. And I think there'll be a lot of good Republicans who run, a lot of good Democrats. And this is going to be a very expensive race and one of the top races in the country. Hey, Stu, you've worked with you've worked with Mike Cox. You've worked with John James. Those are two names that have been circulating. Who else do you think will is going to is going to contemplate this opportunity? Sure. I think John James is at the top of the list of people that people want to consider for running. And one of the reasons is he came a you know, a point and a half or so of beating an incumbent, Gary Peters, in a tough pandemic year. Uh, he raised $45 million in that cycle. You know, I was I was the general consultant for that race. Uh, you know, and he sort of has all the pieces you want in a candidate. I think it, I think Mike Cox would make an excellent candidate. I thought, you know, he, he didn't win his governor's race in 10, but still has a lot of the really great foundational pieces for a great candidate. He's a good friend. Uh, you know, other people they talk about, I know I've seen uh, former Congressman Peter Meyer's name mentioned. I know in D.C., they mentioned a lot of Congress people mentioned, you know, Bill Huizenga, Lisa McLean. I know there's sort of, a, you know, Attorney General Schuette has been mentioned, former Attorney General Schuette. Uh, in the funders section, there's Kevin Rinke, Sandy Penzler. So on the Republican side, there's a lot of really, really strong candidates. What about your old friend, Bill Schuette? I, I just mentioned. Oh, yeah, uh, oh okay. So I, I think, look, he, he's won two tough statewide races. Uh, he's got the ability to raise money. He's, you know, a very good candidate. I mean, he ran for Senate in 1990, so he sort of knows the process. Um, you know, he'd, be, he'd make a great candidate. I think there's going to be a lot of good choices depending on who gets in and who doesn't, but that's going to be the next couple of weeks. Can, can a Peter Meyer win a GOP primary in the state of Michigan? Uh, you know, I think he can. He came up 4,000 votes short of uh, running against uh, John Gibbs. Uh you know, people, I think, regret the decision of putting Gibbs in. That wasn't a very competitive general. And I, I think people look at, you know, Peter, obviously, he's got some challenges in that department. Uh, but I, I don't think, you know, it's impossible for him. Could you talk a little bit about the obstacle if too many candidates show up to compete for these U.S. Senate races in a primary, especially given the fact that we have an August primary day and once that money's spent and that candidate loses, it's kind of gone forever? Yeah, I don't know. I think the Democrats are going to have a pretty competitive primary as well. The one thing that, at least in this cycle, Democrats were much better at keeping a civilized primary in these Senate primaries than Republicans. If you look at something like the Pennsylvania race, uh, you know, David McCormick, who lost to Oz by less than a point, absolutely slaughtered Oz in terms of his image. Dr. Oz, the TV uh, show host who just lost that general to John Fetterman. And you know, he started off that that uh, general election with a recount, uh, which he had to spend a lot of money and time on. But he also had a minus 30 image, whereas unfavorables were 30 points higher than his favorables. He could never really recover uh, no matter how much came in and wound up losing that race by five points. If you go over to the other side, Connor Lamb, who was well funded and a lot of people liked, barely laid a glove on John Fetterman. John Fetterman walked out of that uh, primary with a plus 15 image. And yeah, uh, we were able to get him underwater, but we never could get his image to the same place that Dr. Oz's was. So that's a challenge that Republicans have had. And it's in other states, too. You look at Wisconsin, they had a very civil primary there. I mean, in places, Democrats keep their primary civil. Republicans go for the jugular. 
And it's just a nature of the way it goes. What about the concern of, you know, Trump getting involved in these U.S. Senate races? Uh, you know, obviously you saw a lot of Trump endorsed candidates in 2022 failing. Um, you know, is there kind of a bit of a a bit of a fear that he's going to get a little too pokey with this upcoming election as well? I mean, I think that the focus on Trump's a little bit of a misnomer. I think you had several candidates who were endorsed by him who won tough races. I think if you look at particularly, you know, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, you look at, um, you know, Ted Budd in North Carolina, those are two candidates. I don't think the Trump factor is as big as people focus on. I also, it is a big factor in primaries, though. I mean, if you look across the board in open races, uh, he, he, made, he, was, he made a considerable sort of effect. You look at Ohio. You look at North Carolina, you look at Pennsylvania. He was the difference in those Republican primaries. I mean, there were other factors in it, but he was definitely a strong influence in it. Um, I will see, you know, where he is right now. He's in a very competitive at this point. It's not yet, but he's likely to be in a competitive presidential primary. Uh, he's clearly has a lot of influence, how strong that influence is in a, in a primary, particularly one that might have people that he's endorsed in the past. We'll see. So I was looking at the Ballinger report today, and he notes that in 23 elections for the U.S. Senate in Michigan since 1952, the Republicans have only won three times. Why is that? Why have Republicans traditionally had a hard time with the U.S. Senate seats here in Michigan? You know, I think part of it's uh, the way they've lined up from a calendar perspective in terms of different midterms and different dynamics that's favored the president, that favored the Democrat party. I also think they've run strong candidates. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard for me to answer why in 1976, you know, Frank Kelly, you know, didn't want or won or didn't, or whoever, I think he ran against Bob Carr, yeah. but uh, you know, I, I can't answer those questions. I can tell you like in the current, uh, you know, John James ran two tough races. I was involved in both of them. Uh, you know, the first one, it was really tough to beat Stabenow. He's brand new, went through a really divisive primary. The second one, he had the primary to himself, basically, and still came up short. And there were a lot of individual reasons why. I thought Peters ran a smart race, but I also thought with COVID, it really presented one of the, prevented one of the strengths John has. John's strength is meeting people, talking to people, persuading them one-on-one. -on -one. When you have a pandemic where you can't bring large crowds together, that really hurt our strategy in trying to create sort of a, a movement for James. And he came up just a little short. You know, I, I think the last time you had an open race, Peters put a very good uh, campaign against Terry Land, who ran a strong race. She just caught us, didn't win. I, I think this is going to be a very, very competitive one. Uh, and it's still, you don't know, like normally you can kind of tell how a, uh, a, a, a dynamic is going to work in a, in a cycle based on the beginning. I, I think people are wide open right now. It's a wide open presidential, and I think it's going to be a wide open Senate race in Michigan. In your assessment, who would be the strongest Democrat? You know, I think there's a, a, a lot of strong candidates talking about it. Um, you know, the three that I've heard the most are Alyssa Slotkin, Garland Gilchrist, and Haley Stevens. I think all bring different strengths. I think all bring, would be very competitive. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see sort of how they both maneuver that. As far as uh, who you would most not like to face? As a Republican, who would that be? Would it would it be a Slotkin since she's more in the middle? I mean, she's had competitive races. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that's, you know, her saying she's in the middle is a misnomer. Okay. I mean, she's had a 100 percent record with uh, voting with, you know, Nancy Pelosi. So, you know, she's going to be tagged just as much as any of these other candidates will be tagged. It's just a question of, you know, she raises a lot of money. 
I mean, in that race she did against uh, Mike Bishop that I was, she raised 30 million from her campaign. And then, you know, I think she replicated that every time after. She's she's a considerable fundraiser, uh, but Stevens has raised a lot too. And I think Gilchrist would be a tough candidate by himself. And, you know, I people mentioned Budacek, he'd be a tough candidate. I, I couldn't tell from his statement whether he's running or interested or not. You know, I he didn't say he was running, but he didn't really close the door. But I think they have some interesting candidates on their side. Let's change the subject here to the Michigan Republican Party chair position, which is going to be open next month. Eleven candidates yeah. have filed to run for that office. Uh, give us a breakdown here on what you think is going to happen with that. I don't really know. I mean, I, I'm a little despondent about sort of where the party is right now and what's been happening. I think there's some, you know, there's a lot of candidates. I don't know everyone in the race, frankly. I know some of the people, some are well-intentioned. But, you know, it, it's just, it's tough. Uh, we had some really great chairs through the years. Laura Cox, you know, we had Bob Shostak, uh, Ronna Romney, McDaniel. I mean, some really, really strong chairs. And I, I just don't know that you have anyone to that level running. But I also think that um, you're in this place where I, I think some of the focus is not on tactically winning. Uh, there's just a lot of kind of goofy you know, storylines and some of the scrawlings I see people put out are crazy. It's, just, you know, I hope that you could get, I mean, I'll, I'll give hats off to LaVora Barnes. I think she's been an excellent chair. She's put her head down. She's run really tactically strong campaigns. And I think that's what, you know, frankly, we need in the, in the, uh, you know, in the Michigan Republican party. Uh, I don't know that anyone in that running is, is that. Are you at all concerned as a Republican that this race and sort of the state of the Republican Party in Michigan is going to damage the ability of the party to to put forth a competitive Senate race to be successful in the future? I mean, they've they lost a lot of funding power in this last cycle, if you look at it. They did, but I, I don't think it's different than I mean, look, state parties can be a very important ally and tool, but you can also find ways around them. Like if you look at the Nevada Democrats, they had a terrible operation you know they were taken over by bernie sanders progressives you know the the dscc and gary peters to their credit set up a shell operation that worked around it i think that can be done you would hope it doesn't have to be but you know we had those questions a lot when we went into different states there were different parties of different abilities saying do you work directly with them i always tried to choose to work directly with them i found even the the challenging parties you could find a way to work to it um, but it's it's not the be all end all, but it definitely helps. And in a race with small margins, it can be, it can be a, an important factor. Do you have a favorite for that state party chair race? I don't. I don't. I'm not sure if you would have any hot takes on this, uh, but you know, Democrats in Michigan are pretty well aligned to become an early presidential primary state within their party. Do you think the state Republican Party could potentially be too dysfunctional to handle that? place where they could potentially lose a lot of delegates you know i i'd be very surprised if the republican party went along with that uh, you know i think there's ways you can deal with it where you don't have um to can't necessarily follow the same calendar that democrats have i mean i think the rnc was very clear on where they stood when they made the chairs of their uh presidential primary process the new hampshire chair and the iowa chair were both really great people I got to work with on two races. And they're, they're really strong. They're really strong parties. Uh, you know, I know that the Democrats are trying to change the calendar. They have the legislature. They have the governor. So they can do a lot statutorily. But Republicans will stay in charge of how they deal with it. And 
you know, I, I don't know that you'll get Republicans to change how, where they are in the process. Hey, Stu, have you thought about or been approached about running for chair? <laughs> I have not been approached. I haven't thought about it. I mean, I'm down here. I'm, I'm actually enjoying myself. Uh, it'd be a really fun job. But, uh, I, you know, I don't think I can quite be- get past this line of delegates right now. Um, one more thing here before we let you go. Uh, Sam did mention about this uh, primary calendar. I mean, the Republicans could get jammed here because if the state law has changed that the presidential primary has to be on a particular day in February, let's say, to match what the Democratic National Committee wants to do, uh, what does the national Republicans do? Yeah, I mean, I think there are ways around it. Again, I haven't really looked at the completely the law and the process. I mean, I was the legal counsel for the party in twenty. Uh, where we had a friendly legislature and we had a Democrat part, uh, you know, a Democrat governor who was willing to work with us on the date. Um, you know, I, I think there's ways around it um, that, that they don't necessarily have to select on the same day that that the um, Democrat statutes will tell them to. I know that you're kind of talking about a caucus style. You know, I know that Democrats in Michigan, they have done a virtual vote on the presidential nominee for their state. Could today's group of Republican delegates, would they even be down for a virtual vote of sorts? Like, I I guess I'm a little bit curious of what does a caucus in the 2024 Republican Party in Michigan even look like? I mean, there's several ways you can select. You know, you can have a convention, you can have a caucus. I mean, you basically anything that the party comes up with would be the way that they select delegates. You don't necessarily have to tie it to the same you know, process that, that the Democrats put forward. All right. Well, very good. That's all the time we have. Stu Sandler, appreciate it. Uh, Decider Strategies was uh, his operation as a solo consultant, but he was just finished up a term as the political director for the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Good to talk to you again, Stu. Thanks, guys. Take care. Yep. You too. Uh, and uh, too bad about your Wolverines there against the uh, state over the weekend. Yep. Yep. It's going to be rough. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was good to catch up with our friend Stu Sandler again, John. And, you know, it, it, I wanted to specifically ask him about a few names because Stu has worked with at least three of the people here that we have been mentioning for U.S. Senate, John James, Mike Cox, and Bill Schuette. I We really got to keep our eye on Stu yep. and see where he's going. Yeah, he's going to have a hard choice if they all three get involved about who he's going to pick to work with, if he works with anybody, because he may have some other opportunities as well. So. Yeah, but Stu has worked uh, U.S. Senate campaigns. He knows how they work, and so uh, he's definitely a resource that somebody's going to be able to use. Yep, if you can get him, it'd probably be a good guy to have running your campaign if you're a Republican. Anyway, we'll see who the Republicans end up with. And, uh, you know, I remember when we did the straw poll, John, at the uh, last Republican convention, uh, John James's name came up, but there was a name that came in late and was the winner of that straw poll. The straw poll was at the Michigan Republican Convention back when they um, met and and, um, formalized their AG and Secretary of State nominee. And uh, we worked with the Republican Party to develop our own straw poll there. Who would you like to see run for the U.S. Senate? And it it looked like John James was going to run away with it, but in the end, Ryan Kelly actually edged out John James at the end. Yep, and it, it, it could be a candidate like Ryan Kelly that actually opens the door for a Peter Meyer to win that primary if he got involved. Because remember Rick Snyder. 
right? Yeah, yeah. Right. There was an, enough enough conservative, hard conservatives split the waters, if you will, for Rick Snyder. Uh, I think it was Pete Ho- Hoekstra and uh, and uh, Mike Cox uh, uh, who split the waters, and Snyder walked in the door. So Ryan Kelly was actively asking delegates to come and vote for him in that straw poll. And so I reached out to him last week, and he told me that I have not made any announcements either way on that U.S. Senate seat at this point, much to consider. I mean, I do find it interesting. I think the 2022 gubernatorial election very much evolved into a battle of the various grassroots faction of the modern day Republican Party. And we saw that obviously have a huge impact on the November 8th election as well. Uh, But I do find it quite interesting as we do these brainstorming pools of who will go after this U.S. Senate seat. And you have a lot more you know, may I use this as strictly in quotation marks, establishment candidates. Uh, you know, Debbie Stabenow is a household name in Michigan, and you're looking for someone who will succeed that household name uh, during what's also supposed to be a very competitive presidential race. And so I'm a little bit curious to kind of see those kind of long-term Michigan political figures reappear in a way that they obviously didn't in the gubernatorial race last year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll talk a little more about this with Debbie Dingle here in just a minute, but I thought that we should mention that this week will be the first week of the new legislature, the 102nd legislature, and the first item of business every year for the state house is to name a speaker. And it looks like, uh, John and Samantha, that we're not going to have the high drama that we had in Washington, D.C. Oh, I want 15 roll call votes. I want to stay up till midnight. That'd be great. Oh, yeah. Well, no, that that would be exciting. And it's always fun to be part of history. Um, But it's nice to get a good night's sleep as well. Um, And it doesn't look like any drama is going to happen. Joe Tate uh, looks like he's going to win uh, without any problems with the Republicans, even though it sounds like there was some kicking of the tires there on Karen Witsit. Uh, but here's something interesting, uh, Sam and John. I, while this was going on, I went back to um, the uh, Michigan uh, Library here, the uh, Historical Center, which I, I, I almost feel like has become my second office lately, and looked at all of the speakers' races since the beginning of the state in 1837 and then uh, the uh, speaker vote in 1839. And here's something interesting. We have not had an actual contested speaker's race in Michigan since 1969. Since 1971, they have been nearly unanimous with the exception of 2013 when Doug Geis and Diane Slavens put in no votes against Jace Bolger. Otherwise, it's been whatever to zero. Don't you think a lot of that has to do with though the onset of television? How so? Well, you said that there were contested races earlier in the history, and I wonder if, you know, we've gotten to the point where the people who seem to be wind up becoming or having the best shot at speaker are the ones that can raise the money, who can bring in the most new candidates, who can support the most incoming reps in terms of money for media buys, uh, which is a relatively new thing beginning in the 60s. Hmm. So I wonder if that turned the focus and the focal point more to money because you had to have it to win. Um, and we haven't, you know, I, I wonder if that's the if that's the reason we've had so much unanimity. That's an interesting I'm, thought. I'm particularly looking at the year 1967, which is when you kind of saw the large divide with 55 to 54 for Robert Waldron uh, in the for the state house. And I think 
I, what is coming to my head as we look at this, I think Democrats, when they won the majority in November of last year, they had various serious decisions to make. And that was to make sure that the leaders of these majority caucuses, these historic majority caucuses, were going to be good leaders, were going to be ones that are problematic, ones that know how to strike deals, and ones that have a good track record of collaborating with the former Republican majority. Uh, you know, I think there was a caution to make sure that you're not putting someone who could be deemed controversial at the top of your caucus when all eyes are on them. Um, I think Joe Tate and Winnie Brinks are those choices. Yeah, no, it's interesting. You mentioned that uh, race in 67, and we did a story on that race, and we uh, relied on the memory of Dennis Cawthorn, our friend over there at Kelly Cawthorn, and he was actually a member of the House back then, John, and uh, talked about how there was a disgruntled member of the Democratic caucus who uh, decided not to vote in that race and just sat there on his hands and let the Republican, Robert Waldron, win that race uh, 55 to 45 when it was split at the time. And uh, we actually had that same dynamic in 1959 where there was a split among Republicans and Democrats. And uh, there was a Democrat at the time who had a, a medical procedure, and she could not make it to back to the House floor. Mm -hmm. And so the Republicans changed the rules and said that the number uh, present, um, that you had to have a majority of those present, not elected and serving, and uh, they got uh, the Republican, Don Pierce, to win 55-45. So games can be played. Just like we saw last week, just like we saw it. Uh, and also keep in mind that the state house does have, although a small pool, it does have a pool of Trump endorsed candidates that ran for election to stir up the pot. Originally thought they thought they would be stirring up the pot in a Republican majority chamber. But, you know, I personally wouldn't be surprised if we kind of saw some of those MAGA grassroots candidates that are coming into the house try to... Uh, tried to make some colorful statements. Yeah, maybe they'll nominate their own candidate. You're right, Sam. Maybe they'll feel feel emboldened. Nobody says you have to vote for the speaker, um, but uh, it's probably a good idea if you want to be in his good graces, I would imagine. Do you think, do you think a Matt Maddock votes for Hall as, as leader? Or, or maybe they vote for Matt Maddock? Of course, they already did their election, didn't they? Well, yeah, but that's who, as a caucus, they were going to vote for. I mean, that's that's not anything on the board. I mean, so somebody will nominate Joe Tate, but will somebody nominate Matt Maddock on the floor? Nobody's saying that you can't. Oh, that'd be interesting. But uh, here's the thing, though. Committee assignments have not been made yet, and it is the purview of the speaker. So if someone wants to play games and show, you know, we would support Matt Maddock for speaker, uh, maybe maybe some committees get pulled. You know, the speaker can make somebody's life difficult if they want to. So we'll keep an eye on that. Here, One more fun fact here. So since the founding of the state, there has only been two times in that whole period where the chamber was unanimous for the speaker candidate. It was tradition for many years for the person who was going to become speaker not to vote at all or just to nominate somebody else just because of a, a sign of humility, I suppose. <laughs> That's gone long gone by the wayside. <laughs> the, uh, the two years was just recently, 2019 with Lee Chatfield and Jace Bolger's first election in 2011. The only time when every single member elected and serving 110 to zero, uh, there was never a 100 to zero. 
and uh, there was no other unanimous votes before we even were at 100 candidates. So just uh, fun facts. doesn't really mean anything, but it's kind of fun to, to look at. All right, with all that, let's go on to our next interview here with Debbie Dingle. Joining us now on the podcast is Congresswoman Debbie Dingle. Thanks for joining us here on the podcast. It is great to be with, I don't want to use the word old, but friends that I've known for a long time and they're seasoned in the world in which we all live. <laughs> seasoned is a good word. So tell us about uh, this past Friday, the vote for speaker. Uh, tell us what that whole experience was like. You know, it, it's the first time it's happened in a hundred years where the speaker was not elected on the first ballot. Uh, and actually we set a, a record or precedent that the last time it went to as many votes as it did was the civil war when it went more than that. So that tells you how unprecedented it was. You know, Democrats came to the house organized, prepared to work, prepared to uh, do what we had to do. And, Obviously, it was chaos on the Republican side. And it, it worries me because we have a lot of very important issues that we have to work on for the American people. We cannot be total chaos for the next two years. Uh, and, you know, I don't know what deals we're cutting back rooms. None of us do to finally get that vote late Friday. Uh, it did almost come to fistfights, which is sad. Uh, you don't want to see something like that. But we got a speaker, we're moving on. But I fear this week could be the same kind of um, tension and inability to get some things passed. We still do not have a rules package, and there are a number of Republicans who are indicating they will not vote for the rule package, has, which no Democrat will. Has the rules package been distributed yet? I mean, are we, do, does anybody even know what's in it? Um, we don't know all the side deals that Kevin cut. Friday was obviously a day of more cutting, but we have seen the rules. We got the, the rules package was sent out again at some point on Friday with one chip. We had seen it earlier in the week. I mean, they're going to do things like, and I think this is just a political mistake for them. I mean, if you just look at it objectively, they are very much going to criminalize uh, abortion on providers and on uh, patients. Look, abortion is a very tough issue, but uh, they don't ever see the human element of it. So they're making abortion one of the first things they're doing. Several of the rules are going to apply to it. They're going to bring bills up on the floor that are not going to go through committee. And interestingly enough, um, the president himself has said this, but Kellyanne told me this, Kellyanne Conway, right after um, the governor's election, that Donald Trump said, that many of the Democratic candidates did not get elected because they made no exceptions uh, for abortions in uh, uh, no exceptions and that there were the, the medical health of the mother or other things. So that's just one of the first things. They're doing a number of other things. How about just one vote? One person can try to vacate the chair, which means it was bad enough watching what happened this last week, but if one person in 
the House becomes disgruntled with the Speaker, they can motion to vacate the chair. I mean, how does a Speaker ever feel truly comfortable or settled in when someone can get mad at him and call for that kind of vote? You can see the kind of scene again mm -hmm. that we saw in the House. And, you know, there are other things in terms of spending. What are we going to do about Medicare and Social Security? Are they going to try to cut that defense spending? I'm the first to say we need to have accountability on the money that we are spending. I think they're likely to put the debt ceiling um, into total crisis, which is both a economic security issue, but that's a national security issue as the rest of the world looks at us unable to handle our problems. Congresswoman, did the, did the Republicans really try and make any effort to reach across and strike a deal with Democrats on a speaker vote so they wouldn't have had to go through all these crazy rules that you're talking about right now? No, they did not. They never these tried. Crazy rules, the, these crazy rules are different than uh, the speaker's vote. I would say that, no, the speaker did not, Kevin McCarthy did not, and he knew. I mean, like, um, no Democrat was going to vote for Kevin McCarthy for speaker. No Republican was going to vote for Hakeem Jeffries for speaker. That that was the reality. There were mm -hmm. other scenarios that were being discussed that turned, you know, if somebody else had gotten nominated, could you put together a unity slate? But that was more gossip and outside conversations than anything that was ever real. Yeah, because I was thinking, what about had the Problem Solvers Caucus gotten involved? I mean, was that even a realistic possibility where Republicans and Democrats had come together on maybe a consensus candidate? Or am I just, or is this kind of fairyland talk? No, I think that there were discussions. Uh, you know, what happens if this goes down the road? Uh, I'm not sure there were formal problem solver discussions, but the people that were member of problem solvers were having discussions, but it never became real. So, is is Kevin McCarthy's speakership at, at jeopardy if the rules package doesn't pass tonight? And what happens if it doesn't pass? I think you're going to watch the same kind of stuff you watched last week. I just think this is a very painful time as we try to organize. Now, with this dysfunction in the House, any thoughts of joining the Senate? Well, that was a very clever way of asking. Um, I'm. This is what I am determined to do, and that is, we will not lose that Senate seat. Democrats cannot lose that that seat. I have made a commitment to a number of people that I would not say no. Uh, there's a lot of discussion going on between a lot of people about. What, what, who is the strongest candidate? What do we need? What do we need to be able to do? Um, I will say that anybody who runs for this office, this is going to be one of the most, it probably will be the most expensive seat we've seen ever run in Michigan. People, I'm the one that always says this to you. People think, oh, Michigan's a blue state. It is a purple state. And there were a number of reasons that we did well in this past election. But one of them was the quality of the Republican candidates and their ability to raise money. Republicans are targeting the seat, making it one of their number one priorities. This is going to be a tough, hard seat. And whoever runs is going to have to, you will raise $50 million to $70 million hard dollars. I think there will be a primary uh, because the progressives and environmentalists have very strong feelings um, about who they want or don't want, uh, which is what makes that 
50 million, go to potential 70, and it, the race will cost in excess of $100 million. That's a lot of money to have to raise. What do you think the Democrats, what type of candidate do you think the Democrats need to nominate then to be successful in 2024? They, they need somebody who can talk to everybody that, uh, I, I mean, I guess one of the things I've heard the most is they want somebody who's not going to be a Joe Manchin or a Kirsten Cinema. Uh, the labor wants someone who's going to sit down and work with them and understand what their issues are. Uh, I think the African-American community very much wants somebody that will talk to them, be, work with them, be with them, be there. Uh, and we got to continue to work with the governor to make sure this state stays on a path of economic recovery as we're transitioning and the environmental global climate that we keep our auto industry strong, that we're trying to attract new businesses, um, that we bring our supply chain back to this country. Uh, I think there are a lot of different issues. Who do you think is going to be the first person to jump in? I think there's one person, and I've said this, that has fire in her belly to run for this, and it's Alyssa Slocken. So I would not be surprised if she was the first person to jump in. I think a lot of other people are talking to each other, trying to. I, I personally wouldn't. I, I think there will be a primary. I just think that's a given right about now. But we want to. We want to find the strongest candidate work with everybody, help make those that have some issues people are worried about, make them stronger. So I, I think you're just in the beginning preliminary discussions of people talking to each other. Uh, on the Republican side, who do you think is likely to run? And, and I, another question is too, if John James came to you and said, give me some political advice, should I run? What would you tell him? Well, um, you know, I like John James. I've known him, his parents have been my friends for decades. and. Uh, Peter Meyer is my friend. His father has been my friend for decades. I serve on several boards with him. And I think they're both potential candidates. Can Candace would be a very strong, competitive uh, uh, candidate, but she has said she will not run. Does Ronna Romney come back and run? Don't know. Uh, I think some people will urge her to do that. Um, does Betsy DeVos decide to get into it. I think there's going to be an effort by some. We saw what happened in Michigan with the Trump-picked far-right candidates, and that is partially contributed to the Democratic success. I think there are some in the middle Republicans who care about their country who are going to try to ensure that a strong Republican candidate is nominated so that this race is truly a competitive race. You think your friend Fred Upton is uh, up for it? Um, you know, I'm having lots of conversations with people on both sides of the aisle, <laughs> as you guys can well guess, and we'll see where it all goes. Debbie Dingle, she is a congresswoman from our state here, the state of Michigan. Appreciate you joining us on the Murders Monday podcast. Thank you. Joining us now on the podcast is State Representative Kevin Coleman from Westland. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's good to be here. Thanks, Kyle. So I understand that uh, there is going to be a vacancy in the mayor's seat in the city of Westland. Give our listeners an update on what's going on on that front. 
So Mayor Wild uh, of Westland, he's been in office for 16 years as mayor, uh, so quite a while. Uh, I was on city council from 2014 to 2017 before I ran for the state house in 2018. Um, and I, I made it no secret that I was interested in becoming mayor of Westland someday. Um, so the process is, is uh, the city council here is going to appoint, I think, it looks like they're going to appoint a member of the city council to serve as interim mayor for 2023. Um, and then in the city election this year, it'll be considered a special election for that mayor's seat with the primary in August and then the general election in November. And then uh, the way it works here in Westland is local officials don't take off, uh, office until January of the following year. So I am planning to be in the state house for at least one more year. Okay. Uh, you have announced to run for the um, the position of mayor, uh, but you don't think you're going to get the interim tag, it sounds like. Uh, it doesn't look like it. I think city council wanted to have a member, you know, one of their own on there uh, as mayor. Um, and I didn't, I'll be honest, I didn't pursue it uh, too strongly. You know, I had some conversations with council members, but, you know, I'm, I'm very happy in the state house and I love the job. I love representing my district. Uh, and I'm excited, you know, because we just got majority. Uh, some of our priorities that have been important to us for decades are finally going to be addressed. So I want to be a part of that, too. Now, you have already announced that you are running to be the mayor of Westland starting in 2024. Yes. Yeah. Um, so tell me, um, you, you said you've always wanted this job. Give our listeners a little bit of background in your history in Westland and why this is such an important opportunity for you to pursue. Well, I like I said, I love representing my district and being a state representative. And, you know, if, if it didn't work out for me, and you know, at the local level, I would love to stay in the state house and continue to represent my district. But uh, my heart is here at the local level. I, I love my city. I love the people in it. Most of all, I think Wayne County is actually experiencing a turnaround. We're getting tons of new investment in Wayne County. Westland is going to be a big part of that over here in Western Wayne County. Um, so my story kind of started back in my, I'm, I'm 39 now, but back when I was about 25, I went to a city council meeting. Um, I think it was 2009 um, with a cousin of mine who's younger than me. He had to go for a course, uh, poli-sci 101. He needed some extra credit. I guess he wasn't doing well enough in the course. And he asked me to go. And I, my first reaction was kind of like, why would I waste my time, you know, sitting at a city council meeting? Because I had zero interest in government. Well, I ended up going and uh, I found it very intriguing and exciting. And I kind of became a hobby for me to, to, you know, volunteer with local organizations to help with school board campaigns, city council campaigns. I ended up running in 2011, lost Ran again in 2013, won a four-year term, um, but it was a part-time position, and I, I still didn't see politics as a career. Um, but as I served on city council, it, it really became my passion to serve locally, and it's, like I said, it's where my heart is, and I'm excited about it. Now, what has been the reaction from uh, some of your colleagues uh, to your interest in pursuing this after you all have just taken majority, and, and the margin is very slim at 56-54? Yeah, you know, so so a couple people told me they were surprised that I, especially because I announced early and, and got in kind of right off the bat when I heard the news. Um, but I'd say 99% positive. I mean, I've had uh, several of my caucus members and even members of the opposing uh, party reach out to me and say they're, they're, they want to help my campaign and they're excited about coming down and knocking doors and 
um you know I, I get messages every day you know from people up in lansing saying you know what what can i do to help you out so i really appreciate the encouragement and um you know it's uh our district is a safe democratic seat so it's important to me to make sure our priorities uh our, our democratic priorities are uh are met and addressed um if the seat becomes vacant at the beginning of 2024 again it's a safe dem seat and i'll definitely be a part of um trying to find a good candidate to run who's gonna be a good member of our caucus so well and i if i seem to remember right when we had a vacancy a few years ago with cynthia cynthia neely um eventually getting the seat formerly held by sheldon neely her husband that process uh, if it started on at the first of january it, it ended by I think it was mid-March or something in that in that time frame. Uh, they were able to get it filled pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, and then, you know, I think the governor called that special election, knowing that you know we we uh, we needed that seat. We needed somebody good in that seat, and, and Cynthia's been a great member of our caucus, and and uh, Sheldon was uh, a great guy to work with too, and and you know he's done a great job up in Flint. So um, that, that's a good example of how it can work out. Now, have you gotten response from anybody saying, how could you do this to the caucus right now, considering the margins are so slim and that even a small time away would uh, would not give, uh, you know, even an extra vote for Democrats to get anything done in that January to, let's say, mid-March time frame of 2024? I've had a couple of people make the assumption that the caucus felt that way, but I've not had any members of the caucus say that to me. Um, now, I don't know uh, how everybody in Lansing feels because there's, you know, I, I haven't talked to every every person up there and or every member of the, you know, the House or Senate. But um, like I said, it's been nothing but encouragement. Um, I think maybe there's there could be, you know, uh, folks who might support one of my potential opponents who, who are kind of putting that narrative out there. But uh, I don't see it being an issue for our caucus at all. So I've talked to leadership quite a bit too because i know they had concerns you know about the margins and like i said i i've reassured them that yeah this is a solid blue seat and um i'll be a part of making sure we have a great candidate to fill this my shoes so have you heard of anybody else interested in running for mayor in westland not uh n n nothing official um but but i would assume that whoever gets the appointment would be a candidate so, uh, we, you know, we don't have any names yet, uh, but I've heard basically around town that, yeah, somebody from council is going to get it and, and run. Um, but I don't I couldn't say who or, or what the yeah. what the landscape looks like yet. So. Well, let's uh, let's change gears here to this upcoming legislative session. Uh, Democrats obviously being in the majority. What are some things that you'd like to see uh, this caucus do? Well, I think, um, you know, repealing that pension tax and right to work. You know, if it was up to me, we'd vote on that day one. I think our our constituents uh, expect it. Uh, that's why they put us in the majority. Um, with uh, redistricting, the districts are more fair, and and we saw an election where the will of the people was was projected, and and we saw that in the vote. So, I think it's incumbent on us to to make that happen. Um, I would like to see. Uh, accountability for charter schools you know there's uh, uh, a lack of accountability accountability there and uh, you know some of them do a good job and and I know a lot of families are very happy with them but then some of them are you know it's it's all about profits so 
I want to make sure students are getting the education they deserve. Um, I would say public K-12 public school funding is still at the top of my list. That's what I campaigned on back in 2018. It's still what I feel very strongly about. Uh, infrastructure, especially down here in Wayne County, you know, with Democrats in power, uh, that can become a focus again. Um, road funding, water infrastructure. We still have lead lines in my district that I've uh, been advocating for getting funding to to get those out of the ground. You know, it's 2023. It's time to get those out of the ground. Well, let's let's go back to a couple of these priorities. I, I want to start with right to work because I know there is some hesitation about uh, this being maybe too hot of an issue to take up right off the bat and uh, it could become a bit of a political ping pong where uh, you know if, when the republicans uh, presuming they come back at some point with the governor and the legislature we'll just bring it back again is it possible to create some kind of middle ground or do you just think that it's it's important just to uh, repeal it right straight off I think the smart thing to do is to repeal it I, I don't think uh, voters I don't think voters wanted that in place in the first place. I, I don't I don't see a lot of conservatives saying, well, I voted the other way because uh, you guys passed right to work. That, that to me is not um, a kitchen table issue for the other side, uh, but I think it is for Democrats. And I think that's why they turned out. So that's my feeling on it. I mean, there might be polling or other other folks in Lansing that feel differently, but that's my two cents on it. Now, when you're talking about uh, exempting retirement income from the income tax, you're just not talking about pension income. You're talking about other income, too, other retirement income. Um, or would you just want pensions uh, not subject to the income tax? You know, I'd have to look at the effect on the state budget and, and revenue. Um, but I know the, the pension piece was the kind of the big piece of it. Um, that one I'd have to get back to you on. Charter schools, that might uh, perk some people's ears up. Uh, what, what specifically would you do you think that they need to, what kind of accountability do you think needs to be extended to charters? Well, um, student to teacher ratios, um, the amount of um, funding per pupil. Um, they're, they're just not, that, that transparency that you have in public schools and, and with our system where you, you elect a school board, you have school officials who are, who are accountable. Um, I, I don't want to see families get taken advantage of. And, and, and you see all this advertising about, um, you know, come to this school, come to that school. But that transparency is, the, is really the key for me. Uh, K through 12 funding. I know that the governor has put a bit more money into schools, but uh, is, there a, is there a specific dollar figure that you'd like to see schools get? Or, or are you thinking more money to maybe disadvantaged uh, districts? I'd, I'd like to see more money to disadvantaged districts in general. Um, Wayne Westland schools in particular took the biggest cut under the Snyder administration. So, uh, yeah, biggest cut statewide. Really? Yeah, we were down. Yeah, we were down. I think I don't have the exact figure, but it was in the thousands uh, per pupil. Yeah. So our, our, our we saw our system here suffer greatly. Um, and it's been a number one priority for me to to bump that up and work towards, you know, strong schools here so i didn't realize that uh, you all still had some lead lines too yeah wayne has about 400 homes uh that they've identified that still has lead lines um and it, it's a city that was built you know wayne is actually predates westland it's uh it's a pretty uh, old a lot of their infrastructure is really outdated and old 
and they're looking at um, at least three three to five million dollar price tag on getting those out of the ground. Now, the Senate passed some infrastructure funding uh, that has grant money in it, but there's a lot of um, requirements as far as size of the city and uh, financial need, and they don't necessarily fit into that criteria. So I'm just trying to, uh, as their representative, I'm trying to make sure that this happens this year. I think uh, they, they've had to wait a couple of years now since they've identified that, and 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 they're getting letters from Eagle uh, sent to residents that just notify them periodically that, hey, you're you're not at a level that's toxic, but you're at a level that's elevated. And that's created a lot of um, anxiety. So to me, that's a it's a it's a top priority for me. Well, what committees would you like to be on? So I served on um, insurance. I was minority vice chair of communications and technology and then uh, veterans and military affairs. Uh, I really love serving on those committees, so I've asked to be reassigned to those again. And if I had to add a couple, which uh, us being in the major majority now, um, you know, it's a possibility we might get a couple more committees per member. So I've thrown out there that I, I'm interested in regulation refor regulatory reform. Um, I'm kind of interested in, in our policy as far as um, Cannabis policy statewide. I think there's some some tweaks to that area that uh, would better serve Michiganders. And then um, <clears throat> another committee I, I was looking at was um, uh, local government, um, local government funding. Just just uh, making sure that local governments have that voice up here in Lansing. Like I said, my heart's kind of at the local level. So, and coming from a city council background, I think I'd be a a strong member of that committee too. So. Have you asked to be a chair, or do you kind of think, or do you think that may be a little too much, uh, considering you're going to be running for mayor? Well, I've really, you know, I've left that up to leadership. I've uh, I've talked to Speaker Tate. I've talked to um, uh, Representative Whitwer, who's chair of committees on committees, um, and I've I've let them know I am interested in, in possibly chairing that uh, communications committee. I was vice chair. Uh, minority vice chair, and I have a great relationship with the stakeholders and with um, our caucus and with the governor's office. I introduced the bill to uh, to put the uh, Office of High Speed Internet that the governor proposed into statute, um, making sure that folks have uh, access to affordable internet, and that, that's a priority for me. And I, I think I'd make a good, great chair of that committee. I work really well with our caucus members and with the other side of the aisle. Um, and I, you know, I, I think I'm somebody that's going to be able to balance, you know, running, you know, wearing my political hat locally and then and then uh, serving in Lansing. So, yeah. And that was going to be another question. I mean, any concerns about missing session days? Because obviously with 56 members, there isn't a lot of room for error. So, you know, a couple members not show up. Republicans could play some games with that. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a concern. Um, but it won't be a concern for me because I actually I'm very proud of my record as a member of city council and and in the state house, I have a 100 percent attendance record. And uh, people know that that's kind of a thing for me that I don't miss session. And that's not going to change because I'm running for office. Um, like I said, I I have a passion for this job. I I take it very seriously. And, you know, if, if I if I lose a few votes, uh, 
back here because I, I didn't knock a couple more doors, you know, I'm okay with that. You know, I, I want to do a good job. Uh, this is the job I have right now and I take it seriously. Uh, one last thing I want to ask you about it. Are there any particular bills that uh, you'd like to see passed this year? Um, well, I, uh, I have a handful that I've, I'm getting ready to introduce myself. Like I said, I want to codify that high-speed internet office. Um, most police departments don't use quotas anymore. It's kind of an outdated way of, of writing tickets, uh, but there are still uh, situations, especially actually out here in Wayne County, where I've heard from members of police departments, uh, not people that want to wear it on their sleeve or, or have me put their name out there, but they've They've asked me to look at police quotas and making sure that that's not a way of uh, writing tickets. So I have that bill that I'm getting ready to introduce again. And, you know, it, it forces negative interactions with the public uh, uh, in order to, to get stats, you know, and so that's not the way we want to do policing. That's kind of an outdated way to do it. Um, one thing that was a little bit kind of uh, touchy with some folks was my public notice reform stuff. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, I do. Yeah. Now, the media yeah. is very interested in that one. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I haven't made up my mind if I'm going to reintroduce it yet. Uh, but I do. And, and, I, and I know that narrative was put out there that it's a Republican, it's Republican policy. I, I don't really know why that's a partisan thing though, because uh, our Wayne Westland observer here, they're getting ready to go out of business. Um, we've lost all our local papers out here in Western Wayne County, as, as far as the ones that Westland has worked with and contracted with as their city newspaper. The mayor of Wayne owns a paper uh, that's, I think, bi-weekly, but, so that doesn't meet the requirement to, to be able to put your legals in there. So there's just so few options now. And then if you get out state, there's even less options. There's cities up way up north that have to go with the Grand Rapids uh, local paper. They don't have any circulation in their district. So this is an outdated way of doing it. Now, I know uh, there was a way, uh, there there was policy to put it online or to have like an email subscription or, or different ways of doing it. I just want to open it up so that cities can be more transparent. Uh, they'd be required to get their legals out there, but they'd have different ways of doing it. Now, I know, um, obviously, Detroit Free Press, Detroit News, they don't like it. Um, I get it. You know, it's maybe a few dollars out of their pockets, but I'm an advocate for local government. I don't want to see us throwing good money after bad. So it's not uh, like my number one priority, but it's something that that I was looking at. Um, other, you know, things, uh, the, the Elliot Larson LGBTQ piece, uh, that should be strengthened. I absolutely feel strongly about that. Everybody deserves equal treatment. Um, I've looked at some animal rights stuff. I've looked at mental health stuff. So there's a whole lot of areas that I'm really interested in and I'm, I'm excited about looking at. So, All right. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. We appreciate uh, you extending uh, your thoughts on, on these and uh, other issues. Kevin Coleman, state representative out of Westland. Appreciate you being on the MERS Monday podcast. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the MERS Monday podcast. Thanks to Representative Kevin Coleman for uh, taking some time here and speaking with us today. Also, Representative Congresswoman Debbie Dingell out of uh, the 6th Congressional District. I'd also like to thank Stu Sandler for uh, spending some time with us here. Uh, post-production of the Burgers Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio and Okemos. I'd like to thank AT&T for sponsoring this and all our other podcasts. 
For the boss, John Rurink and Samantha Schreiber, I'm Kyle Malin. Until next week, take care.